I thought I'd start out and say, I love a good story. Like, you put a book in front of me that's a good story. Uh, you take me to a theater and show me a play that's a good story. You put a, take me to the movie theater. I love a story. What makes a good story to you? What, what, what makes a good story? How many of you guys like, you know, the romantic comedy where a little bit of romance, a little bit of fun to it? Uh, some of you are into like the, uh, oh, I want to see zombies, and that makes a good story. There's a zombie in the movie. Yes, okay. Uh, I, for me, what makes a good story to me is I want to find characters that I connect with. I want to look at a story, and if I can see characters and think, man, I can picture myself in that person's shoes. Or I can look at this story, and I can say, man, you see that character? I want not, I, I know who that person is. I don't like that person. I want to avoid them at all. I like to find a story and find where I fit into the story, who I connect with, who, uh, who I can relate to. And so last week, uh, I sold one of my kidneys, and I took the, the five of our kids and my wife. We went to the movie theater, because that's what you do when you go to the movie theater nowadays, is you sell a kidney, and that's how you uh, pay for the ticket. So I sold a kidney. There's still one left. And we went to the movie theater, and we saw The Greatest Showman. Has anybody seen that movie? That is a great movie, and I'm not going to spoil it for you, I promise. But I'm watching this story, and I'm getting sucked into the story. Okay? If you don't know the story, there's some relation. At least when I see the story, I relate the story to our day and age today. Okay? So the story of The Greatest Showman is about this guy by the name of P.T. Barnum, who created the Barnum Circus. Okay? And you're introduced to this character, Barnum, and this guy, man, you can't help but be like a fan of his. You, you watch how they tell the story. This guy's just a little bit different than everybody else. He, he's unique. He's a unique character. He, um, he, he just lived a little bit different. He was a little charismatic. He came from nothing and became something. And you can't help but root for this guy. You can't help but watch this story and think, man, Barnum... Man, I'm for him. He's awesome. I want to be like him when I grow up. Maybe some of you, some, some of you not. And here's where the rub in the movie starts to, to happen is, is Barnum, he creates the, uh, opens the Barnum American Museum with all these weird things happening inside of it. Uh, and he starts getting some success. He starts being successful at what he does. But the problem was, is the successful uh, establishment around him. The people of high society that we would deem as being a success, they're kind of looking at Barnum and they're kind of thumbing their nose at him, saying, no, no, you are not a success. Even though your, your circus is growing, even though you're, you're attracting people, you are not a success because we get to define what success is. We say success is high class. We say success is drinking your champagne with a pinky up. We say success looks like this and does this. And, and so they're saying, essentially, Barnum, I don't care how big your, your company grows. You are not successful unless we say that you're successful, defined by our definition of success. And so this is where, middle of the movie, you see Barnum. You see him begin to conform. You see him begin to give in, to cater, to seek the approval of the successful establishment that has looked down on him for so long, that has thumbed their nose at him. And this creates this conflict where you have this character who's just a little bit different than everybody else, and that's what draws you to him. Uh, then the pressure becomes to conform to be like everybody else. And this becomes a conflict, and I'm not going to tell you how it's going to turn out. I'm going to make you sell your own kidney and go watch the movie yourself so you can see what happens is he has this, this pressure to conform. But have you ever... 
Have you ever felt that pressure from society around you? From your family, from, from the culture to conform to what they define as being success? Have you ever felt peer pressure? Everybody's doing it. You need to do it too. And you begin to cater and change who you are to fit what somebody else says as this is what a success is. I know I felt that pressure in my life. In fact, I grew up and we didn't have a lot of money growing up. And so I turned 18 years old when I was a senior in high school. And as soon as I turned 18 years old, it was the craziest thing because there was credit card companies that came banging on my door saying, listen, if you're going to be a success, if you're going to be all you can be as an 18-year-old kid, you need to have all this stuff. And I'm like, well, I don't have any money. And they're like, great, because we'll give you a $1,500 credit card so you can go buy all the stuff. And I'm like, really? You'll give me 1500 bucks so I can have all the stuff and be a success? And they're like, absolutely. And I'm like, okay. Sign my name on the dotted line. Go out and bought all this stuff. I bought cologne for the first time. Like, that was, I was a man. You know, I bought cologne. I could smell good. And then a month and a half later, this bill shows up in the mailbox. Like, that 1500 bucks. like, I had to pay that back. And there was 30% interest on that 15. They didn't tell me that. They just said, you'll be a success. And now I'm a poor kid that's got to pay 1500 bucks back. And that took a long time for me to do that back in that day and age. See, I think this is a temptation that most of us can connect with. This idea that we need to conform to what somebody else says as being a success. We have to fit somebody else's uh, definition of what it means for us to be a good person, to be a success, or whatever the case me has to be. And this is where we can connect this to this movie, The Greatest Showman. Because if we are a Christian, if you are a Christian in here today, you are supposed to look a little different than the people around you. You're supposed to live a little bit differently. You're supposed to raise your kids differently. You're supposed to talk a little bit differently. You're supposed to do business a little bit. You're supposed to love differently than everybody else. You're supposed to love not for what you get in return, but for what you can give. That's our motivation to love. And so as a Christian, we are to live and look a little bit different than the people around us. And what happens is society puts their expectation on us. They're going to say, listen, your success, it isn't inward. Your success isn't in faith. It's external. It's how you look. And so this expectation that's on us begins to change the way that we view success. And we begin to pursue those things. We, 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 um, we want to have good kids who never do wrong. And so we put this pressure on our kids to fit this mold of being the perfect kid. Because that, that, that dictates how people view me as a parent. We think success, success is having the big house with the big yard and the two or, or three car garage. That's the success, right? We think success is that yearly vacation to go see the mouse, the pilgrimage to see the mouse. We think success is having all the latest gadgets, all the latest toys, the newest car, the, the, the 4K resolution TV, widescreen. I don't even know what the modern TV is nowadays. 4K, high def, whatever it is. They say, listen, if, if you're going to be a person of faith, that's okay. Like, you can have some of that faith. Uh, as long as your faith still, still, still feeds our definition of success. God, if God helps you attain the external success that we're all looking for, then that's okay. You can have your faith. You just can't be crazy about it. And if you're going to have that faith, listen, you can't have any problems. You can't have any doubts. 
You can't have any struggles. You've got to have a perfect faith. And so that's what the society says. This is what success is. And so you know what many of us do? We fake it. We fake it. We try and act the part. Look at me. I am success. I have no struggles in my faith. And really, we're struggling trying to understand how this all fits in. And, and, and we, we try and we, put, we take that Christmas picture, you know, the Christmas card picture that you send out. And everybody has to smile just perfectly. And if they don't, we think we've got Photoshop. We'll fake it, right? We fake it. It's kind of like putting lipstick on a pig. A pig is still a pig. You can put lipstick on it. I ain't kissing that thing. That's not the way it works, Right? And it's not only society that puts pressure on us to conform. You step into church, you step into religion, and there are religious people who put pressure on you to, if you're going to be a good Christian, you have to conform to my religious convictions. To say, if you're going to be a good Christian, you have to have my Bible version, because my Bible version is the best. And you've got you've to fit that. If you're going to be a good Christian, then you have to homeschool your kids. That's the only way to raise good Christian kids. Or the opposite side, the only way to raise good Christian kids is to send them into public school. And you have to do what I do to be a good Christian. You have to speak in tongues. You have to give to the offering. You have to do all these things. And we have these external definitions that are put on by religious people to say, if you're going to be a good Christian, this is what it has to look like. In Jesus' day, there was a group of religious people that were kind of in charge. They're called the Pharisees. They were the religious elites. And what they would do is they would read the scriptures. They'd read the Bible, just like this. And they would find a bunch of rules that we have to follow. And they'd find all these rules to pull out. And then they would make, make rules for how you have to follow the rules of the Bible. And they would allow those rules to be defined by them. And they're saying, listen, if you're going to be a Christian, then here's a list of rules you have to keep. Don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with girls who do. If you do those things that we define, then you will be a successful Christian. And what happens is their spirituality becomes constrained to just the external. Your religion, your faith becomes just uh, what you do. It's not who you are, it's what you do. It's, It's external, just like our society says. But instead of your looks and your house and the toys defining your success, they're saying if you're a good Christian, then you obey our laws about what you can and cannot eat, about what you can and cannot wear, about how you pray out loud and the types of things that you say and do. And then Jesus comes onto the scene. Jesus, remember, this is God in the flesh. This is God come on a rescue mission to redeem us from our sin. And Jesus comes and he grows up in this church culture. He grows up listening to these religious leaders saying, listen, listen, here's how faith works. You have to do all these things that we say you have to do. And if you do those things, then you can be like one of us. And you can be a spiritual person like us. And Jesus grows up in that, in, in, in that culture. And you can imagine Jesus looking around saying, this is not what we intended. This is not what God intended. Because our faith is never about what we do. Our faith is about who we are. And here you've got these people who are conforming to the religious rules of the day. And they're missing the thing that makes their faith unique. Their faith in God unique. And it's the heart. In fact, Jesus, as he's looking around at this society, this culture that he grew up in, he says this in Mark chapter 7, 
He said, these people honor me with their lips. They can say all the right things. They can do certain things, but their hearts are far from me. Saying this is not the way that God intended. Jesus, 30 years old, he starts his ministry. He starts his ministry and he begins, he begins teaching the people about something new. He begins teaching the people about something called the kingdom of God. He starts preaching about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is at hand. You need to be a part of the kingdom of God. And he goes around and he's, and he's healing people of all sorts of diseases. The, the, the lame man who can't walk, he heals him and, and the man walks. Uh, the lady with, uh, or, or the guy with leprosy, he heals the leprosy. Uh, the guy that was dead, he, he raises back to life. He does all these miracles and he's at the height of his success. People are following him all over the place because of the miracles he does. And because he is teaching something different. In fact, the, the people say they listen to him because he was teaching as one with authority, as opposed to the scribes and the Pharisees who were teaching like they were trying to make it all about themselves. Saying, Jesus, something is different about him. And he's at the height of his success. And this sets the stage for Matthew chapter 5, introducing the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, the people follow Jesus anywhere he went. And he takes them out, out of town. He takes them out into the country. And he climbs this mountain. And here's, here's the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. This is the greatest sermon ever told from the lips of Jesus himself. Matthew chapter 5. The words will be on the screen behind me. Verse 1 says, Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying this. So here's the scene. Jesus has all these people following him because they want to hear about this kingdom he's talking about. They want to hear about how he's talking about faith completely different than what the religious leaders had talked about. And so they're following him, and he climbs up the mountain, and all the people sit down, and he begins to preach the greatest sermon ever told. And you can imagine as he's getting ready to preach this sermon, he's thinking about what the religious people are telling everybody. Hey, if you're going to be religious, you've got to follow our rules. If you're going to be a good person, you're going to follow my rules for what we define as, as ex external, external rules for what we define as being a good Christian, a believer. A believer. And you can picture that as a backdrop for Jesus getting ready to teach this sermon. In fact, if you were to summarize, what is the Sermon uh, on the Mount all about? I would say that the Sermon on the Mount is a compact, fixed theology of what it looks like to belong to the kingdom of God. It is a fixed, resolute, clear theology of what it looks like for a person to belong to the kingdom of God. See, belonging to the kingdom of God is not something you claim. It's not a, it's not a title. What Jesus is going to do is he's going to give us a picture of what it actually looks like. He is going to combat the, the cultural expectation that the Pharisees have said, of this is what it means to belong to the kingdom of God. He's going to say, this is actually what it means. The sermon is going to be, not live like this and you'll be a Christian. Not do these things and you'll be a Christian. The sermon is all about because you are a Christian, you should live like this. This would be defined as characteristics of those who belong to the kingdom of God. In fact, as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, it is probably the most penetrating section of Scripture that any of us can ever look at. It's kind of like giving us an x-ray of our lives, exposing whether or not we are truly a follower of God, or whether we have just conformed to the religious rules of the day. 
In fact, this might be an antidote to the pretense and the sham that plagues modern Christianity. And this is my prayer for us. Is that we would allow this sermon from the lips of Jesus himself. The greatest sermon ever told that we would allow it to penetrate our hearts. To expose areas that we are focused on doing instead of being. To lift us out of the conformity to religious rules. And to change our hearts to begin to act like the people of God. To actually being the people of God. We don't have to fake it. We don't have to put lipstick on to say, look, I'm pretty. But we would actually allow God to change our hearts into being the people of God. And what Jesus is going to do is he's going to start the first 12 verses. And he's going to teach something called the Beatitudes. Beatitudes. You say, well, what is beatitude? You won't find the word beatitude in your Bible. It actually comes out of the the Latin Bible. And what it means, it means a state of of blessing. Meaning the people who who characterize, who, who have these characteristics in their life, they will be blessed by God. They are the ones who are blessed by God to be a part of the kingdom of God. And I think, it's, I think it's so significant that Jesus, as he's getting ready to start this sermon, he starts right here at this, this thing called the Beatitudes. It's so important because there is a difference between doing Christianity and being a Christian. Can you understand that? There's a difference between us doing Christianity and actually being a Christian. Remember the religious leaders of that day? They were saying, hey, you need to do this. You need to do that. Uh, you follow the rules. And if you follow the rules, then God owes you eternity. God owes you because you're such a good person, because you've earned it. And the Beatitudes are going to completely flip the script on that idea. Notice it's called the Beatitudes, not the do-attitudes. In fact, if you were to summarize what the Beatitudes are all about, here's, here's what I want you to take away. If you miss anything, I want you to take this away today. Christianity is not what you do. Christianity is who you are. Christianity is not what we do. Christianity is who we are. Listen, which of those is easier to do? Is it easier to have a list of of rules to follow? Or is it easier for us to change who we are as a person? This is not what we would expect when Jesus is going to talk about Christianity. But he's going to teach us that the kingdom of God isn't just about the externals. Isn't just about what we do Christianity is about the internal. It's about who we are. Listen, here's, here's the good news. Because there's, someone, there's some of you in here, you're like me. You're a little bit broken. You don't have it all together. You drop the ball. There are times that you struggle with doubt. There are times that you struggle in your faith. There are times that you go through hardships. Listen, if that is you, listen, the Sermon on the Mount is written as a comfort for you. As hope. Because a reminder, the kingdom of God is not about what we do. It's about who we are. The kingdom of God is not dependent on what you do. And that's good news. Because I don't know about you, but I don't ever feel like I can ever measure up. And it's good news it's not about what I do, because I know what I do often isn't the right thing to do. Listen, As well, some of you, you come in here today and you're like, well, I'm a religious person. 
I follow those rules. I'm a good person. I go to church every Sunday. I give money to the offering. I, 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 I give money to the guy standing on the street corner. I'm a good person. Listen, if you're a good person in here today, this message is going to be relevant to you as well. The Sermon on the Mount. Because Jesus is going to begin to strip that down from us to say, listen, you're not, you're, you might feel like you're a good person, but none of us are good enough. None of us are good enough. And, and God is going to take this sermon to show you that there's more to faith than just doing. There's more to faith than just being a good person. We jump into the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to see this word nine times in this text, this word blessed. See this word? You see it in verse 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 and 9 and 10. You're going to see this word blessed again and again and again. Question is, I think it's important for us to define what this word means. What does it mean to be blessed? What does it mean to be blessed? Is that where we uh, get a new car? Is that where we get um, a grande Americano uh, at the coffee shop and put it on Instagram and say, hashtag blessed, hashtag blessed, right? I, I, I think it's got to mean more than that. I mean, yes, it, I, I, do, I do think it means to be happy, to be fortunate, but, but that definition just to be happy is not enough because happiness is a subjective Happiness is a feeling, right? So you can put a Dr. Pepper on my hand, and you can put a Seahawks game on the TV, and I'm, and I'm happy. Hashtag blessed. Okay, but guess what happens? That game's going to get over. The season's going to get over, and that Dr. Pepper's going to run out. And then I'm not blessed anymore. I'm not happy anymore because it's gone, and I'm waiting for the next one. I need the next one. Okay? And, 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 and so when he says you're going to be blessed, he's not talking about how people feel because feelings come and feelings go. When he says blessed, this is an objective statement about how God feels about them. When he says you will be blessed, that means that you will be approved by God. That's what being blessed means, is that we are approved by God. In fact, I love the way that Max Locato, who's a pastor in, in Texas, he says uh, the word blessed is, is to experience the applause of heaven. Kind of beautiful picture. Blessed is experiencing the applause of heaven. You are approved. You are accepted. See, blessed means to be greater than just being happy. Blessed just means that there's a hope and a joy that we experience that is, that, that is independent of our outward circumstances. So guess what? I can still be blessed when the Dr. Pepper is gone and when the Seahawks are out of the playoffs. I can still be blessed. So we're going to look at these Beatitudes. There are eight Beatitudes we're going to look at today. And I want you to recognize that these Beatitudes are not things that you and I can do. He's not giving us a list of things. You have to do this. These are things that we are supposed to be. The Beatitudes. We're going to look at eight of them. We're going to look at a couple of them more in depth. But for sake of time, unless you guys want to stay here till four this afternoon, we're going to breeze through a couple of them and summarize them really quickly. But the idea of all of these Beatitudes, I want you to remember, is that these are who we are, not what we do. Because that's what Christianity is. First beatitude is the foundation for all of them. Verse 3, it says, Blessed, approved by God, are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? I mean, we see this idea, and, and I think, when I first look at that text, I think, well, does it mean to be humble? Like, if I'm just a humble person, uh, maybe I'm just not too proud of myself. 
Maybe I'm just a little discouraged in life. Like, does that mean I'm poor in spirit? In fact, the original language says poor in spirit means to be spiritually deprived. Poor in spirit means to recognize that I have nothing to offer. Give you a picture of what poor in spirit looks like. You go to Walmart. You go to whichever Walmart you want to go to. You go to the one over here, and there's a guy standing outside of the Bob Hall dealership. And he's on a corner, and he's got a sign that says, homeless, nothing to offer. Whatever you can give will help. You go to the Walmart out in West Valley, there's another guy with a sign. It says, homeless, I have nothing. Whatever you can do will help. This is the idea of being poor in spirit. It means we have nothing to offer. We have nothing And we are dependent on somebody else giving to us in order for us to to survive and and to achieve. This is what it means to be poor in spirit. And isn't this idea about those who are poor in spirit? Jesus says, those who are poor in spirit, theirs is a kingdom of God. Isn't that opposite the way our society thinks? And if we think, we think, uh, blessed is a man who is always right. Blessed is a man who is strong. Blessed is a man who is rich. Blessed is a man with a great job and a great family and a great car and a great house. That's who's blessed, right? That's what religion says. But the kingdom of God is different. The kingdom of God says, I'm not good. I have nothing to offer. And so therefore, I understand poor in spirit is I am dependent on God for his grace and his mercy. As Jesus is saying, the poor in spirit are blessed with the kingdom of God is to recognize that we have a spiritual need, that we will never be good enough. That even if we can start keeping some of the rules, even when we can fake it and do all the stuff that people say we have to do, being poor in spirit means we recognize our hearts are still desperately wicked. Like, I can follow the speed limit, and in my heart, I can say, this is the dumbest thing. I wish I could just floor it. I can, in my heart, I can say, the speed limit is stupid. I wish it wasn't there. Being poor in spirit means recognize this. I can follow the speed limit, but recognize my heart is desperately wicked. And that's what it means for us to be poor in spirit, that we are dependent upon God and not ourselves. That we recognize, I don't have enough to offer. I need God to kick in his grace and his mercy because I can't do it on my own. Being poor in spirit is probably seen evident through King David. King David is a David and Goliath fame. King David writes in 1 Samuel 18, he says, Who am I and who are my relatives and my father's clans in Israel that I should be son-in-law to the king? 2 Samuel chapter 7, he says, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? He's saying, man, look at this. Look at where I am. It's not because I'm so great. It's not because I have anything to offer. He's saying, who am I? Like, why would God choose to to bless me and to, to, to lead me and guide me like this? This is what it means for us to be poor in spirit. Is that we recognize, man, there's not enough good in me to, to deserve this. It is nothing but the grace of God. It's the reason I can stand up and say, man, I belong to the kingdom of God. Not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus has done for me. And this is so foundational to Christianity. That's why it's the first beatitude. Recognizing that we are spiritually bankrupt. 
That Christianity is not about what you do and what you earn. It's the grace given to us from God. So what makes you feel like you're a Christian? What makes you feel like you have standing before God? Is it because you are a good person? Is it because you go to church? Is it because you don't swear? Or is it because you recognize that I have nothing to offer and I need someone else to do it for me? In fact, I need Jesus. This is a posture of faith. This is a posture of our heart in Christianity. That we are poor in spirit. That we are dependent on God's grace alone for our standing in him. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Second beatitude. I call this a funeral verse. Because if you go to a funeral, you're probably going to hear this verse being read. Verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And listen, that, that verse is true. If you've lost someone you love, if you've, you've lost a job, you're dealing with a medical scare, you've got depression, anxiety. You know, listen, you're not overlooked by God. God is with you. God will comfort you. But listen, this verse means so much more than just that. It goes beyond that. When he says, blessed are those who mourn, he's specifically tying it to verse 3 on blessed are the meek, or, or blessed are the poor in spirit. He's saying, blessed are the mourn. Those are the people who mourn over their sin. Those are the people who recognize that, sure, maybe they've kept some of the rules, but they know they haven't kept them all. And they mourn over their sin. They mourn over the fact that they can't do enough. They mourn over the fact that their heart is desperately wicked. I mean, I think about this. I think about when, when the Apostle Paul, when he wrote, man, the things I want to do, I don't do. Haven't anybody recognized that? Like, you know there's things you should do, but you just don't do it. And things, man, the things I don't want to do, those are the things I do. Anybody recognize with that? Like, I look at when Paul says that, the things I don't do, I do. The things I do want to do, I don't do. I look at him having a heart, a broken heart over that. Like, feeling extremely guilty. Like, God, I'm sorry, I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm mourning over it. This is what it means when he says, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who have the guilt over their sin. Listen, there is a tremendous amount of freedom. There's a tremendous amount of freedom for you and I. When we can, when we can be honest before God. When we can be honest before ourselves. To acknowledge, man, I'm broken. Man, I've got guilt over this. I'm not just going to pretend I'm okay. But man, I, I, I recognize I've got, I've got sin and, I, and I'm mourning over it. This is why, this is why when, when we come to church, I want you to know, listen, it's not wrong to have an imperfect faith. It's not wrong to struggle. It's not wrong to have, have doubts. You don't have to fake it at Restoration Church. The question is, do you recognize your need for God? Do you confess that sin and that guilt to God? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Third beatitude says this. It says, blessed are the proud, for they shall inherit the kingdom, inherit the earth. 
No, that's not what it says. It says, blessed are the aggressive, for they shall inherit. No, no, it doesn't say that. It says, blessed are the Donald Trumps of the world, for they shall inherit the earth, right? No, it says, blessed are the, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek. And I think the meek, aren't the meek the weak? Like, what does it mean to be meek? Sounds like timid. Sounds like someone with a, doesn't have a spine. Blessed are the meek. They inherit the earth. The original language says this word meek means power with gentleness. This would be the idea of, of, of describing a, a tame animal. I mean, when you think about Barnum's Circus, the most impressive animal in that circus was the elephant, right? You know what's amazing about that elephant? As they could train that elephant to do tricks and to, to, to do certain things. This is an incredible amount of power that is tamed, that is controlled. Implies this idea of, of self-control. This is what it means to be meek. It's to have an incredible amount of power, but to be tamed and trained. And in fact, Aristotle describes meekness as the mean between excessive anger and angerlessness. That's pretty cool to think about. That's what it means to be meek. To be able to control that power. So let me ask you. Somebody crosses you. Somebody cuts you off in traffic. Do you always have to defend yourself? Somebody says a mean word to you, mean word about you. Do you always have to go and defend yourself? Do you find yourself to be vengeful? When you are, are oppressed, when, you, when stress comes and people are, are pushing your buttons, do you respond in uncontrolled rage? Listen, if that's you, I'd say you'd struggle with meekness. Because I think the idea of meekness is the ability to have self-control, to be in that, that balance between anger and angerlessness. Again, this is not something you do. You just don't go and do meekness. It's not a rule to follow. Meekness is something you grow in. And it starts with us being poor in spirit, recognizing that we're spiritually bankrupt. It, it, it starts with us mourning over our sin and recognizing the times that we blow it. And that's when God begins to work in our heart, to reshape our heart until we become meek. Fourth beatitude says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, in verse 6, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I want you to think about this idea about hungering and thirsting for righteousness and contrast this with what the Pharisees would have taught of that day. Remember, the Pharisees taught about religion. They taught about doing. And if you do enough, then, then your Christianity becomes based on your goodness, upon your righteousness, and you being so awesome. And listen, if you have attained that righteousness, if you have attained being a good person, then there really, there really becomes no hunger or thirst for more, right? Like if you approach God and say, God, I've done all these things for you. I'm a good person. You owe me. Then there's really no hunger and thirst for righteousness because you've already earned it. You've already attained it. You're already awesome enough. And Jesus is teaching something different. He's saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. 
who recognize, man, I need this. I want this. I know I keep struggling. I know I keep having these problems, but I want this. Listen, this isn't about changing what you do. This is changing who we are. And Jesus says, listen, if you hunger and thirst, not as you attain, but if you hunger and thirst, you shall be satisfied. The thing you want is what you'll finally achieve. Listen, you know what I think about when I think about hungering, thirsting for righteousness? Some, uh, some of you, some of us, man, we're, we're struggling with some sort of sin. We've got this bad habit, and it seems like, man, I can't shake this thing. Like, it's just, it's got its claws dug into me, and I hate it. Listen, if you are diligently seeking after God, pursuing him, in the midst of having that hang-up, that's showing there's a hunger and thirst for righteousness. That I recognize, man, man, this is what I want, and I've got this horrible, stupid thing, and I'm, I'm trying to pursue after God. That's what it means to hunger and thirst. It's that we pursue that. Everyone hungers and thirsts for something. Everybody's going to hunger and thirst for something. For wealth, for status, for political power, for the righteousness of God. The question is, which of those hungers is stronger? What's more important to you? Is it that external success? Or is it the righteousness of God to be satisfied in him? The next four Beatitudes we're going to run through. I told, I told you we're going to deal this. We're going to run through quickly with them. They're, they're, they deal with how uh, we live around other people. Verse 7 says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The merciful is this idea about those who extend mercy to, uh, or extend love to those in misery. You see someone in a struggle and you have a compassion. You have a love for them. That is what it means for us to be merciful, to love people in misery. It says verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the person who, who has no hidden motive. Blessed is a person who, who loves other people, not out of selfish interest, but out of genuine love and compassion for somebody else. To be pure in spirit means to be honest without hypocrisy in their life. That's what it means to be uh, pure in spirit or pure in heart. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Listen, is there conflict constantly around you? I mean, do you go to work and, and there's, there's all these fires all around you? In your family, there's all these fires all around you. Listen, if that's you, listen, you're probably not a peacemaker. It's probably not everybody else's fault. You're probably at the center of it, which is why it happens all the way, all the time around you. Peacemaker means the people around you are, are, are you make situations better, not worse. That you are trying to, to, to bring peace to different circumstances, to different relationships all around you. you. See, what happens is when you live with these beatitudes, when these attitudes became characteristics in your life, when you live these qualities, naturally what's going to happen is you're going to stand out in the crowd. People are going to notice and say, man, you're different. Man, something's different about you. Listen, there's going to be some people who are going to be mad at you. Because you're not pursuing the same external success that they are. 
They're saying, no, I get to define what success is. Success is all external. And, and, and you need to do what I'm going to do. And if you're not going to do what I'm going to do, I'm going to be mad at you. Or they're, or they're going to become jealous of you. Because as you live these beatitudes and you experience peace and freedom, they're going to be jealous of what you have. And here's what Jesus says happens because of that. Verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He says, blessed are the persecuted. When you live in such a way that people become angry and they become poking at you and and attacking you because of your faith, blessed are you. Notice it says, blessed uh, when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Not blessed are you when you are persecuted because you have a loud mouth. Because you're obnoxious. Because you have an unpleasant personality. See, this is so contrary to, again, what our society says. Our society says, listen, blessed are you when you follow all the rules and God has to give you everything you want because you followed the rules. Blessed are you when you are healthy and wealthy and happy. No, that's not what Jesus said. He said, blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Ed Stetzer, a Christian guy, says says this. He says, too many Christians have embraced the myth of safety in the center of God's will. That just doesn't match up with the reality spiritually, historically, or scripturally. He says, God is not primarily concerned about our comfort, our safety, and our prosperity. He desires to be glorified in our lives. That often comes through faith, faithfulness in the midst of persecution and suffering. Blessed are you when you are persecuted. For righteousness sake. These are the beatitudes. That's what Jesus is saying. These are the characteristics that should define who we are. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. This is the greatest sermon that's ever been preached from the lips of Jesus himself. And what he's saying to us, listen, the kingdom of God is not about what you do. It's about who you are. The kingdom of God is not about doing. It's about being. It's not about acting the part. It's about being a certain type of person. Listen, I look at that list. And I just ask you this question. Does that describe who you are? Are you poor in spirit? Do you mourn over your sin? Over your brokenness? Are you meek? Do you have a hunger and a thirst for the things of God? Are you merciful? Are you pure in heart? Are you a peacemaker? Listen, I don't know about you, but I look at this list and I'm a little bit overwhelmed. Maybe you're better than I am. But I'm not sure exactly how I add up. I think there's some of those that I struggle with. But here's the key. Here's what I want you to catch. 
Jesus keeps talking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. He's going to say it again and again and again. And what does it mean to be in the kingdom of God? And I try to think of a, of a picture, of a word picture to help you understand that. And this is the best I came up with. My wife and I, we've got five kids. And in some regard, our five kids are a part of the Diet Kingdom. I'm, I'm not trying to be arrogant or, or, or egotistical. Again, I just want you to have a picture of what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. We've got these five kids. And one of the things I say to my kids, listen, Diets, we're Diets. We don't do that. We do certain things a certain way because we are Diets. It's who we are. So I say we serve people. This is what we do. We, we, we love one another. We forgive people. We laugh. We cheer for the Seahawks. This is who we are. Because you are a Diet, this is who you are. This isn't just what you do. Listen, I'll tell you what. When my kids struggle in that, when they fail to live up to that, I don't say, oh, oh you're, not, you're not a Diet anymore because you haven't done those things. No, my goal is to, to help my kids grow into this, to become that. So when they're adults, they stand on their own and they say, this is what a Diet means. A Diet means I love people, I serve people, I forgive people, I laugh and I cheer for the Seahawks. This is what it means to be a Diet. This is who we are. And that's what Jesus is trying to say. Listen. If you are a Christian, you are a part of the kingdom of God. And all of us are working to become this. This isn't something we have to do to be a part of the kingdom. But when you are a part of the kingdom, this is who we are becoming. He's raising us up. He's changing our hearts, shaping us to where someday we will stand on our own and say, look, this is who I am. Because I am a part of the kingdom of God. See, if you are truly a Christian, these characteristics define what it looks like in your life. There should be areas in your life that are growing, that you are becoming more like. Because the kingdom of God, remember the kingdom of God, being a part of the kingdom of God, is not what you do. It's not following the rules. It's not going to church. It's not praying a prayer. This is what the Pharisees missed out on. They missed this idea completely. They said, no, I'm a part of the kingdom of God because I've kept all the rules. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 that's not what it's about. It's about a relationship with the Savior. See, my kids became a part of the kingdom, of the Diet kingdom, because of the relationship with me and my wife. And you and I, we become a part of the kingdom of God, not because of what we do, but because we have a relationship with the Father. Because we have a relationship with our Savior Jesus Christ. And the more that we grow in that relationship, the more he works in our life, the more that he changes our heart, the more these characteristics become who we are. Listen, this is what Restoration Church is all about. A group of people who are continuing to seek to be a part of the kingdom of God, who are focusing on our relationship with Christ. Not the rules, not the 10 things you've got to do to make God happy. We're a group of people who are saying it's all about this relationship and we're, we're focusing not on, on, on what we can do, but we're focusing on growing in that relationship so that God changes our heart. So that these characteristics become who we are as a child of God. Listen, if you're in a situation, you're saying, I'm trying to understand what faith is all about. I'm trying to understand what Christianity is all about. Man, I've got struggles. I've got doubts. I don't understand it all. Listen, listen. 
you belong here. You're one of us. Because I think we're all in this progress of understanding what it looks like. Of seeking a relationship with our Father. Of growing in that relationship and becoming more like Him. It's not about doing it. It's who we are and who we're becoming. I invite you to be a part of this. We're not a perfect group of people. But we are pursuing it wholeheartedly. That relationship with the Father. That He would change us. He would change our hearts. To make us like Him. To make us somebody who is poor in spirit. Who mourns over our sin. Who's meek. Who hunger and thirsts for righteousness. We can't do that on our own. It requires the work of God in our heart. Listen, if you've never invited Jesus Christ into your life, I'd invite you today to begin that relationship with Jesus. Because that's where Christianity starts. It doesn't start with what you do. It starts with a relationship. I invite you just to open up your heart today to say, God, God, I'm trying to figure out this Christianity thing. God, I want that. I want to be that type of person. God, I've tried to do it on my own. And I just can never be good enough. I recognize that, God. I recognize that I am poor in spirit. That I am spiritually bankrupt. I'm dependent on you. So God, would you come into my life? God, would you be my savior? I confess my sin before you today. I invite you to be Lord of my life. God, I'll follow you wherever you lead me. God, I offer my life to you. Change me. Mold me. Today, God, would you make me your child? We can't be the type of person unless we have that relationship with God.